Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Open up to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And as a bit of background, remember in chapter 7 that Samuel, who is now um, working as the prophet of the Lord, has has, uh, brought victory, the word of the Lord has returned to the people, right? There's progress being made, that uh, there's ground being taken, in a sense, for the kingdom, and um, and Samuel is at the forefront of that. He is leading the people of Israel uh, in that. And now we come to chapter 8. And this is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel. In the name of the second, Abijah, they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. The thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt even to this day, And that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will rule over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen. And they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest, and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel and they said, no, But there shall be a king over us. 
that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Now, I mean, this is a passage that that you've likely thought about. It is a sort of pivot point in the history of Israel, right, from the the time of the judges into the time of the kings, and this is the the pivot uh, into that. And um, it, it begs a lot of questions that, that you have to think through when it comes to this. Now, the first thing that that we see, um, what do we see about the sons of Samuel? They're just like Eli's sons, except their sins are of a different order, right? Eli's sons, they... Their sins were sexual, right? But but what are the sins of Samuel's sons? Perverting justice. They are um, by by what? By bribes, right? They're being they're they're taking money to render judgments, taking money to render judgments. They're supposed to be judging Israel as the the sons of a judge and being raised up into leadership. And here they are perverting justice by taking bribes. Proverbs 17.23, A wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. Bribery undermines all justice because judgments are then rendered not on the basis of truth, but on the basis of the highest bidder. Right. So, there's this, so it's completely arbitrary based upon monetary gain. So dishonest gain, filthy lucre, right? A disqualification for eldership um, in the church. And it's certainly a disqualification for the sons of Samuel. Now, um, and so that ties into with with the requests that the people bring, right? They're seeing even Samuel's sons not rendering judgments according to truth. And so that leads the elders to come to Samuel and say, look, things have got to change. This is not good. We need to have a king, right? So they ask for a king. And so, so the request is based on a couple of things. One, Samuel, you're old. Right there, there's that. You're getting old. Your time of being able to judge the people is coming to an end. Two, your sons are worthless and hindering everything that's good. And and so, based upon those two statements, they say now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. And the question that's always asked is, was it, was it? good or was it bad? This is what seminary students debate. Was it good or bad for them to ask for a king? 
And the answer is, of course, yes and no. It's both. Um, was it, was, so was this an illicit request? Was it, was it a request grounded um, in something that was forbidden? Um, I would say no in this sense. The kingship, right, had been planned for quite some time. Kings were going to come to Israel. And that's prophesied all the way back in Genesis 49. Um, the, the, um, out of the tribe of Judah, right? Uh, Genesis 49.10, the scepter, right? The scepter, the scepter is the identifying, um, whatever you want to call it, identifying symbol of the king. Right, So the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So, so the kingship is, is prophesied right back there in Genesis, and then of course in Deuteronomy chapter 17, there are guidelines for the appointment of the king. There are certain things, certain um, certain characteristics or, or certain activities, actually, that the king is supposed to be dedicated to. Deuteronomy seventeen fourteen through 20. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely, surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself, listen to this, what was the king to do every year? Or when he's, is it every year? No, at least once, at the beginning of his, he's to do what? Do you know this off the top of your head? Michael does. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. The king, when he is inaugurated, writes out the law on a scroll to get it into the old head, right? To get it into his bones. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. Keep him humble. And that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So right there, in the second statement of the law, Deuteronomy, is guidelines for the setting up of the king. So that's the first thing. So in them asking for a king, they could simply be remembering Deuteronomy and what was, what was stated there, right? Having studied the scripture, they knew that a king was possible, right? But what's bad about their request? <clears throat> well, 
It's not necessarily that they ask for a king like all the nations who are around me, because that's what Deuteronomy 17.14 says. You'll ask for a king like the, the nations all around you. But, it, but, but if you go back to Samuel, what does it say later? no, right at the end, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So indeed, there is going to be similarities between the kings of pagan nations and the kings of Israel, but what was Israel supposed to be? They were supposed to be distinct. They were not to be like all the nations. They were to be different in the sense that they would become a blessing to all the other nations and certainly not become like those nations. But here they are at the end stating their motives, right? They ask for something that's good, but their motives are wrong. Their motives, it appears clear, is they are tired of the old ways of Yahweh and they want to just be like the nations surrounding Israel. They want to be like the nations. And so, so, the, so monarchy, the kingship is predicted, it's, but it's, it's strictly regulated. right? The king is supposed to have a certain character. Now, things quickly go south with the first king that is chosen by Samuel, right, Saul. But, um, and certainly, knowing, <clears throat> knowing what lies ahead and knowing that the office of king is, is, uh, has been appointed eternally unto Jesus Christ, we, we would expect that we would see an analog in the the kingdom of Israel. And so we do see kings. So, so they're, they're essentially, I mean, think about this though. Think about their request that we want to be like the nations. They're rejecting, their, they're rejecting everything that's great about Israel, right? Their, their covenant status. God has made promises to them. God has told them that he would be their God and that he would fight their battles, Right? And now they're, they're like, yeah, just give us a king so that our king might fight the battles for us. It's absurd. It's such a reduction in firepower. Right? It's absurd. To what other nations had God made the promises he made to Israel? None. Only one. Yet they determined they would like to be led by a man not by God. That is the import of what they are saying. We want to be led by man, a man, a tall man, a tall and handsome man, a tall, handsome, and eloquent man, rather than this God that we can't see to determine whether he's handsome or not, and who, when he speaks, just frightens How does Samuel respond to all of this? He says it very succinctly. 
He's not happy. This thing displeases him. It displeases him, right? And, and he, but yet, what does he do? He prays to the Lord, right? He prays to Yahweh. He, he doesn't make perhaps the mistake that Moses made in striking the rock and calling the people rebels. It displeases him, and he immediately goes to prayer. It's such a good lesson there, right? When, when your hackles get raised, probably fall in prayer before you do anything else, right? Pray to God. And that's what he does. And wonderfully, the Lord gives him a response. Probably not the response that Samuel was expecting. And the first thing that, that Yahweh says to Samuel is, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. Do it. Do it. Give him a king. And then he says this, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. There we have it. They rejected God from being king over them. They had a king, didn't they? In fact, they they had king and a sub-king. They had Yahweh as their king fighting their battles, but they also had Samuel leading them into battle and, and was as worthy as any man to be a king. And look at chapter 7. God gives him victories. He's leading them into battle. The word of the Lord is returned, right? And so Samuel is there being a king. And so, yes, they are rejecting Samuel as well. And it's stated later, right? It says, um, <clears throat> it says that down below. And so, so they've rejected in asking for this king, a king so that they might be like the nations, the pagan nations with their false gods. They asked for it. And, and so um, they're rejecting God in that. He, and then he says, okay, so do it. They've rejected not you, but me from being king over them. And um, it's true to form. It's true to form for the people of Israel. Since the time of Exodus, this is exactly what has been happening over and over and over and over and over again, right? In, in the time of the judges, think, we went through the book of Judges, and every, you know, the, the people would call out for a king, God would, or God would raise up their enemies, their enemies would come against them, God would raise up a deliverer, and the deliverer would deliver, and they'd be happy, but then they'd fall away. And they'd be oppressed by another foreign nation coming in and oppressing them by God's direction. And then they'd call out for a king. So this constant, constant apostasy. And here again, they are trading their covenant-keeping God for idols. More attractive, easier to control idols of the nations surrounding them. So they've rejected you, but not me. True to form since the exodus, you've forsaken me and served other gods. And then he finally says, but do it and tell them what it's going to be like. Do it and find out just how great it is to have a sinful king ruling over you. Um.
I mean, think, think about this just for a moment. True to form since the Exodus, that the people of God forsake God and serve other gods. Um, false gods, false, false gods today don't exist, right? Right, there's just no temptation toward idolatry for any of us. Right? Any, any New Testament warnings against idolatry? Little children, flee from idols, right? The last words of the book of 1 John. He's concerned that his people are going to flee. Think of the book of Hebrews. The constant warning to not, not cave under pressure, right? And, um, <clears throat> you know, there's always this split heart dilemma. Jesus talked about serving, you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and wealth. And so God has made a covenant with his people. He has made promises. He has, he has, um, he has confirmed those promises in the very crucifixion of his own son. There is nothing more you or I need than Jesus and him crucified, and yet... These, these silly idols of the nations still attract our attention. It's the human heart, it's indwelling sin, it's the temptations that beset us, right? But they're hugely important to resist. The temptations of the flesh are hugely important to resist because they're in competition with God for your, all of your affections and your heart. But think of the promises that God has made to you in Christ. <clears throat> so don't be like these people calling for a king when they already have the king of kings fighting for them. So the warning comes. <clears throat> Samuel goes to the people now. Takes these... He, spoke all the words of the Lord to the people. He did not take his own words. He took the words of the Lord to the people um, who had asked of him a king. And he said, this is going to be what you endure. You, you want a king? Here's what the king is going to treat you like. Your sons will fight his wars. He will fight, but your sons are going to be fighting as well. Um, other, other sons will serve as his provisioners, right? So all of his household is going to need to be provided for, and all of his, his staff is going to have to be provided for, and your sons will be doing that work. Your daughters are going to serve as his appetites dictate, the perfumers and the bakers and the cooks. Um, he's going to tax you. And that tax is so that he... Um, he has something for himself. He's going to take your workers, he's going to take all of your servants and make them his own servants so that your work is more taxing for yourself. He's going to take 10% of your flocks. A tithe of your flocks is, is his. And you will be his, his servants. Um, and then... Finally, all of that affliction, it's going to be sort of, it's going to be household affliction, it's going to be monetary, it's going to be sort of um, economic, but also um, 
the focus of it is, is a burden. All of that is going to cause them to cry out to God. And what does it say? When they cry out to God, it doesn't say that, that God will not hear, which is interesting. It says that God will not answer. He will hear, he will hear the crying out, but he will not answer, and they will be left to themselves. And, I mean, think, think through what we know lies ahead for the kingdom of Israel. Division and the constant, constant flow of wicked kings who serve not themselves and who don't serve, the, I mean, who serve not the Lord and the people, but serve themselves. Um, and so, so God is giving them what they, they ask. The people then respond again. So this is still warning stage, right? Samuel's like, wait, this is what you're going to get. The people respond and they say, well, they refuse to listen to the voice of Samuel, it says there. But Samuel was delivering what? Not his own words, but the word of God, right? So, again, they're not rejecting Samuel. They're rejecting the Lord in this, right? They're rejecting his word. And so they say, no, but there shall be a king over us. No, no, we don't. No, it's not going to be like that. Look at the nations. Wait, like Egypt? Wait, like Syria? Babylon, like, um, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Um, They want their king to judge them, to go out before them and to fight their battles. All that God has already said that he has promised to do for them. These are all things explicitly stated that God was going to do. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to go out before you. I'm going to fight your battles. Exodus 14.4, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Deuteronomy 24, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So Samuel takes the people's words then back to Yahweh again. He takes them back to the Lord, their words, and the Lord says again, do it, do it, appoint a king over them. Listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, (laughs) I think this is Samuel sort of like at the end of his rope. He's like, go home. Go go every man to your city. Go to your homes. He doesn't tell them, okay. He doesn't tell them I'm about to appoint a king. He says, go home. And then then in the following chapters, we see him appoint, um, find and appoint and anoint Saul as king. 
Now, so what do we, again, what do we make of this in history? Um, it's a... It's a mixed request, right? They ask for something that, that God certainly was going to establish. They ask with wrong motives. God gives it to them. He uses it as, as both a tool to bless and a tool to, to judge them, right? The kingship. Um, <clears throat> kings were to defend. They were to govern. They were to love. They were, they, and, and, and um, not many of the kings would do that. A few would. Um, a few would, and in that they point toward the King of Kings who does it perfectly, uh, Jesus Christ. But, but so what do, what, do, how, what do we pull out of this to apply? A few things here. Israel was to be distinct, was to be set apart, was to be holy, was to be different. But the temptation that constantly comes upon the church, that constantly comes upon us individually and in our own homes, is to homogenize with the culture around us. Right? There, there is this unending call, <clears throat> um, siren call, right, of our culture. It's the curse of cool, right? It's the curse of cool. Coolness dictates much of what we do because we just don't want to be seen as different. We don't want to be set apart. We don't want to serve God because it's, it's so countercultural if you're doing it according to Scripture. Right? So we homogenize with the culture, and, and so that should not be. We should resist that. We should want to honor God rather than honor man. We should want to serve him, um, come what may. Um, failed fathers, again, is another, is another theme in this chapter. Failed fathers need adopted sons in order for fatherhood to carry on. Right? So that's what we see here. Eli needed Samuel because his sons were worthless. Now Samuel needs Saul because his sons are worthless. Saul seems like he's firing on all cylinders at the beginning, but even that falls apart. Samuel will, though, have Saul. Uh, Samuel, again, this, this stood out to me. Samuel in chapter 7 is a king. Now he is really rejected, but again, the major rejection. In rejecting the man of God, you're rejecting the God of that man, and that's what they've done. Um, Calvin on Deuteronomy 17.14 says this about the regulation of the king, right? That, that the king was, the kings that were to be set up were to meet a certain standard and were to have certain practices that they kept. Calvin says this, in some, the power of kings is here put beneath that of God. That's such a helpful thing, isn't it? Just that statement. That is exactly what all of that was meant to do to the king, is to say, you are not the king of kings. You are not God. You're simply a servant of God and of the people. So you're going to copy out the law, and you're going to be the one who's most diligent to keep the law. 
In sum, the power of kings is here put beneath that of God, and kings themselves are consecrated unto obedience to God, lest the people should ever turn to ungodliness, whatever change of government might take place. Now, also, even... These are my my random thought applications at the end of the sermon, so these don't necessarily flow together. These are, okay... Um, even though the request of the people contains sinful motivations, God will still use the request and continue his work through it, right? God God can use evil to bring about his good and his own glory. And so, even though this they had sinful motivations and asking for a king, the kings were to be a type of Christ, and, and, and God was going to set up kings. And King David, in particular, would be uh, lifted up. Uh, <clears throat> the attitude of the people is what? In the end, what does the attitude of the people boil down to? How would you put it? There's that, right? They want to be like everybody else. They do not want to be uncool. Rejection of God, right? And, which is always this, we know better than God himself what is good for us. The attitude of the people is we know better than God do you ever go with specifics to God and then demand that he hold to it? Right? Give us a king like all the nations, right? Going to God, asking for these things, but you go to him in such a way where, where you're demanding things from God, not out of humility, not out of even what you know to be good but you're holding God's hand to the fire. Um, Not that we shouldn't pray specifically. I think we often do pray too amorphously, but sometimes we pray specifically and then are unwilling to receive the, the answer that God gives to us. And so we hold God to specifics. And we think that God... God would know what is good for us. And when it doesn't turn out like we expected, we begin to question whether God really does know what's good for us. Does he have that that power? And so rather than wait for his work in his time, we, we grumble and complain. Um, one commentary by Dale Ralph Davis, who I think some of you have sat under his preaching. He said this, Yahweh will sometimes give us our request to our own peril. God's granting our request may not be a sign of favor, but of our obstinacy. Sometimes God's greatest kindness is in not answering our prayers as we desire. Psalm 106, verse 15. So he gave them their request 
and it's cataloging the people in the, in the desert. And it says, so he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. Right, so God, God hears our prayers. And I, I, let me repeat what he says. God's granting our request may not be a sign of favor, but of our obstinacy. In other words, God may determine not to bless, but to discipline. Now, both of those things are good. We want the discipline of the Lord, right? We do want to be sanctified and grow in him. So I'm not saying that God is giving us evil. I'm saying that he's giving us hardship for a purpose and even answering our prayers according uh, out of our obstinacy. And then finally, let me say this. Resistance... um, The people showed no resistance to their desires. They desired a king. They are warned from the very mouth of the prophet, don't do this. Samuel has been up front. He's been giving them the word of the Lord. He's been taking their requests to God. God has been communicating with them. And at the end of it, that word just stands out, no. There will be a king among us, right? They, they, it is their desire. It, they are passionate about kings. And they will have a king, right? And so their passions are inordinate here. And they, they have no resistance to their desires here. We don't struggle with that. Again, that's Old Testament sort of stuff, right? Our desires, our passions, waging war against us, right? Happens all the time. Do you have resistance to those desires? How do you find resistance? How do you inoculate yourself with those, against those desires? You know God's word. You know you learn and believe what pleases him as written in his word. We have to know what God's will is for us, right? And to believe it and to think of all things that it is better. His desires for us are better than our desires for ourselves. Always. And where are his desires for us written? In his word, laid out there. And he is a compassionate and gracious Bounding in loving kindness sort of father to you. He desires your good. He desires your eternal salvation. He desires it so much. Right? You know what I'm going to say. John 3.16, right? He desires it so much, your good, that he, he sent his son to die for you. And to be your eternal king. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sanctification that you are working in your people. Lord, shape us into into a people that don't grumble and complain, that don't desire to be like the nations, that desire to be those who are like your son, those who desire the purity of your church, those who desire to be a, a... witness to a a perverse and and wicked generation generation. Lord I pray that we would not we would not
allow our leaven to leaven the whole lump, Lord, that we would, we would not think that the, the perversion that we indulge in is somehow good for us, oh Lord, that we would kill it and remove it far from us, and that we would honor you as our king above us. Father, we do pray and ask that you would fight these battles for us by your spirit.